Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 115, The African Burial Ground. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show this week and here to talk about one of New York's newest must-see landmarks. That would be the African Burial Ground National Monument, which opened in 2007. Now, I'm sure you're thinking right now, last episode, Greg, you talked all about Heart Island, which was the city's potter's field with thousands of unknown graves. And here you are with another burial site with tons of unknown graves. Very morbid. Believe it or not, this is on purpose, just to contrast the two. Heart Island is on the outermost edge of the Bronx, mysterious, inaccessible to the public, and generally, when you think about it, a place of sadness and despair. But the African burial ground, on the other hand, right in the heart of Manhattan, in fact, it's two blocks north of City Hall, represents one of the greatest archaeological finds in modern New York history. And the new monument gives long overdue respect and honor to those who were buried there, namely the remains of one of New York's first African populations. Now, this is a twofold tale here. First, of an unsavory dimension of New York's past, how slavery first came to Manhattan, how the first free black population was treated, and how through horrible and dehumanizing conditions, they were able to preserve their cultural heritage and religious beliefs in a way that would be discovered almost 300 years later. In the second half, I'll talk about how the African burial ground came to be discovered, the controversy surrounding it and some of the legal wrangling, and of course that ultimate question which I find most fascinating, how did an early colonial era cemetery manage to retain preserved underground in the busiest part of the busiest place in the world through 100 years of skyscrapers and subways? The answer, I'm happy to report, lies in one of my favorite topics in New York history and one we bring up all the time, that early reliable source of brown fetid polluted drinking water The African Burial Ground National Monument is located in New York's Civic Center between Duane and Reed Street on this little nub of a road called Elk Street, right off of Foley Square, which is the city's administration center, and just a couple blocks north of City Hall and the Brooklyn Bridge. Unlike most New York landmarks, the burial ground is, underscore here, a national landmark, meaning it has a unique national significance. 
It became part of this select group of places by authorization of the President of the United States. In this case, it was designated by George W. Bush in 2006. The Burial Ground Monument is operated by the National Park Service. And when you're there, you'll most likely meet one of these friendly park rangers, you know, the same type of ranger you'd meet if you were lost in the middle of Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, you know, with those brimmed hats and everything, all the brown. Incidentally, New York has many historic landmarks, but has only a few, less than 10 actually, true national monuments, including the Fort Castle Clinton down in Battery Park, the entire island, a governor's island, Grant's tomb, the Statue of Liberty, and now the African burial ground. We'll get to the actual monument here a little bit later. The actual burial ground that the monument represents is actually far larger. In fact, the true size of it is really unknown, but it's believed to be approximately seven acres, stretching in directions underneath many of the surrounding buildings here. Buildings along Broadway are built on top of it, as some of the structures on Chambers Street, some of those buildings that are facing the Tweed Courthouse and City Hall. The burial ground dates as far back as the 17th century. And to give you some idea of why this place is so truly important, not merely for African Americans or not just for New York history buffs, but for anyone who's an American, in fact, anyone who's interested in history, I've got to get us aboard our little time machine and reel us back all the way to the year 1625, to the year that the town of New Amsterdam was founded by the Dutch West India Trading Company. That also happens to be the same year that Fort Amsterdam was completed, the colony's principal structure that stood for many decades at the tip of the island. The Dutch needed New Amsterdam to grow, to become its key port of call for their traders throughout the Hudson Valley region and the eastern seaboard. By design, it was a company town, and its early settlers were primarily traders. They weren't builders or town planners. They didn't take that long trek over the Atlantic Ocean to choose to do menial work. So after 1625, to stimulate the town's growth, the Dutch had to import its laborers in the form of some of the New World's first African slaves, the first being a group of 11 men who arrived in New Amsterdam in 1626. Many of the earliest slaves came from ships that the Dutch had captured from the Portuguese, taking them far from their original homes. Early records assigned names to some of these men that would be associated with their homelands or their original captors, names like Antony Congo, Dorothy Angola, and Jan Negro. Slave labor was used to build many of the major town structures after that particular date, including that large wall that expanded along the northern edge of town. Now, obviously, not that slavery was any picnic under the Dutch, but men and women could earn their freedom and eventually own property. According to the writings of Director General, our favorite, Peter Stuyvesant, quote, true and free ownership with such privileges as all tracts of land, unquote, were granted to freed slaves. Freedmen and slaves were even given a certain amount of legal privileges, like to sue Europeans for unpaid wages and injury. But don't think that Mr. Stuyvesant here was some liberated guy. In fact, he was actually New Amsterdam's largest slaveholder, and it was under his watch that New Amsterdam saw its first public slave auction. With all that in mind, you shouldn't be surprised that those men and women who did gain their freedom couldn't actually live within the city walls, that wall, of course, being today's Wall Street. They were forced out to live beyond the borders, settling in specific, quote, free Negro lots, unquote, around the southern edge of Collect Pond there. That's that tranquil body of water there that provided the city's drinking water and a place that, frankly, here on the podcast, we take every opportunity to mention. In fact, there's a whole podcast on it if you haven't listened to it, episode 50. 
So that's where one of the first settlements was, around the southern edge of Collect Plum. But they were actually in several places throughout Manhattan Island. However, all these places were unprotected in the event of an attack or an invasion. Things got worse in 1664 when the British took over the colony and renamed it New York, bringing with them their traditions of slavery, meaning that the scraps of legal protections that had been afforded by the Dutch were essentially wiped away. By 1703, there were around 700 men and women from Africa and the Caribbean living in New York, essentially about a tenth of the city's European population. The slaves and the remaining free black citizens of New York practiced a diverse number of religions in their homelands, but many converted to practicing Anglicans in New York. Trinity Church, however, who had baptized hundreds of slaves, did not allow the remains of black people, slave or freed, to be buried in its churchyard, the one down at Wall Street and Broadway. And so, looking for a sacred place to bury their dead, they claimed some land south of Click Pond, and they created their own private burial ground. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Now, obviously, a discussion on slavery in New York City could take a series of podcasts, and I'm really going to need Tom's help on that one. It's such a dense and complex subject. But one key thing to bring up here is the way in which early British New Yorkers might have housed their early slaves. New York was not a plantation town. Many people owned one or two slaves, and they kept them within their own homes. As a result, there's actually less archaeological evidence of how enslaved people might have lived in the city. And these farms of freed black men that had been scattered over the land here in Manhattan were, over time, eradicated by the incredible growth of the city during the 19th century. At what was originally called the Negro's Burial Ground, however, this is a place where people visually exhibited their religious beliefs in the form of burial practices. The burial ground was used as a public cemetery beginning around 1712 and up past the expulsion of the British from New York, so up to around 1790 is what they believed the last date to be. The borders of the burial ground were loose, but they conformed around the hills and were contained within sort of a natural ravine. It's so difficult to picture this now because, of course, it's all flat land. But in fact, it was quite hilly right around the Collect Pond area. After a day's work, slaves were allowed to come here and bury friends and loved ones according to traditional customs. And at night, New Yorkers would hear the foreign-sounding music, the strange drum beats, and the sounds of an exotic ceremony drifting down from the burial ground. Well, that form of non-conformity just would not do in British New York, 
And so in 1722, blacks were not allowed to congregate at night, and no more than 12 people could gather at the burial ground at a time. While that certainly put a damper on ceremony, their traditional customs would be instead preserved underground. The dead were buried here in wooden boxes, and most were faced east, as per customs of some African-based religions. Along with the remains, included trinkets that had religious or personal value, cowrie shells, pipes, buttons, and pieces of coral and crystal. So the last body put to ground here was probably in 1790. With the British gone and the city allowed to expand, as you can imagine, this land became a lot more valuable. I mean, think of how close it is to all of these major New York institutional buildings. To put this into perspective, City Hall opened in 1812, just a little over two decades after that last burial. White landowners coveted the real estate here and were looking to flatten out that polluted click pond and the marshy surroundings around it and build up these newfangled tenement buildings. And so it's from here that an extraordinary coincidence happened. In great disrespect for the bodies underground, piles of dirt and debris were used to fill in the ravine which contained the burial ground, and the entire area over many, many years was evened out to allow for proper city growth. Collect Pond and the marshes were drained, all these hills were leveled. The graves of New York's early slave and freed black population were covered over in landfill, sometimes up to 16 to 25 feet deep. This resting place, which some historians think, of anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 people who were buried here. But it was that deep unconcern by these civic leaders that actually preserved the burial ground. By the middle of the 19th century, many multi-story buildings rose up around the area. Notably at the corner of Broadway and Chambers, and at the southwestern end of where the burial ground would be, rose New York's very first department store, A.T. Stewart's, in 1848. And in the early part of the 20th century, two very grandiose Beaux-Arts marvels, the Immigrant Savings Bank and the Ornate Hall of Records, were built. With the clearance of the Five Points neighborhood, this mass of now rotting, terrible tenements was wiped away, and the southwest portion of that neighborhood, of the Five Points neighborhood, was replaced with Foley Square Plaza, which is the administration center of New York and the location of many court buildings and government offices. If you're unfamiliar with this area, just for a visual reference, if you remember that late 80s TV show Night Court, well, the opening credits, it's that. And so part of Foley Square is situated above the former burial ground. Now, these new buildings were constructed on old, marshy land, but because these buildings weren't that tall, none more than seven or eight stories, the depths of the foundations didn't go more than 20 feet or so. In most places, the burial ground lay even deeper in the ground beneath these buildings, undisturbed, completely preserved by the landfill that had been hastily thrown on top of it. Now, flash forward, all the way forward, in fact, to 1989, New York, of course, has hundreds of skyscrapers now, but unbelievably, this small seven acres of land still had these older structures of a more modest height on them. That is, until the federal government began looking for a space to build new offices for the GSA, or the General Services Administration. Now, despite what you might have heard from the story, the GSA was actually well aware that they might be finding something interesting under the surface of this area. Several 19th century maps, and even older than that, do indicate that a burial ground was in existence here, but no one was really sure if it had been cleared away, how deep it was, essentially if the bodies had been moved during any time in the past. So all eyes were on this initial excavation, when in June of 1992, diggers here did indeed find the first evidence of human remains. Throughout the next year, 
excavations would uncover a total of 419 bodies and a huge assortment of artifacts. It was the largest and most significant discovery of its kind in the United States, allowing historians to look firsthand at the lives of those New Yorkers who were normally invisible to the public record, drawing conclusions on everything from eating habits and stress levels to even being able to figure out what cultures these adults and children might have come from. But beyond this, as great as this is as a site for urban archaeology, it does bring up one of these philosophical dilemmas. I mean, these are, after all, people who died 300 years ago on American soil. Physical reminders of a very tragic tradition in American history, and in many cases, potentially the ancestors of thousands of Americans walking around today. Well, after a torrent of protest nationwide, and even on the floor of the U.S. Congress, plans to construct a building here were radically changed. The area was made a national landmark, and new plans began with the mindset of making not just a memorial here, but a place for reburial for the 419 people who had been discovered here. The remains were studied by researchers at Howard University, then reinterred following a very somber 2003 procession called the Rites of Ancestral Return. Architect Rodney Leon was commissioned to design the present $5 million monument which stands at the site today, and which in 2006 was made a national monument. Admission to the monument is free. From street view, it looks like a gigantic marble slab with a round sunken pavilion to its side. From up above, it kind of looks like a frying pan or the Starship Enterprise, if you're creative enough. But although it's small, the feel is very immediately somber and quiet when you walk in, almost as if there's some kind of invisible sound curtain that surrounds the place. It just seems calmer when you walk inside. As you step up to the area and approach the monument, immediately to your right are these mysterious, evenly spaced lumps of grass where the bodies of the 419 are buried, collected here in hand-carved wooden sarcophagi. In front of you is that gigantic brown wall, 24 feet in height, or about the depth of the original excavation. You'll note a very odd heart-shaped symbol on the front, with little lines that finish in small curls. This symbol, called the Sankofa, was actually found on one of the lids of the coffin buried in this spot, constructed out of 51 tiny little iron tacks. The symbol traces from people in the West Africa region, and its meaning... Well, I won't attempt to read you the meaning in the native African tongue of Tui, but the symbol does in fact seem to have few meanings, one of them being, look to the past to understand the present. Next to the symbol is an inscription that reads, for all those who were lost, for all those who were stolen, for all those who were left behind, for all those who are not forgotten. From there, you enter a thin triangular room called the Ancestral Chamber, which is open up top to reveal light, then a few steps down into the most spectacular portion of the monument, called the Circle of Diaspora, a round open space comprised with a variety of common and very unusual religious markings. These represent all the various forms of religion that would have been around during the period of burials here, covering most likely any perceivable faith the 419 people might have practiced. And while you have Christianity and Islam represented here, there are many more fantastically obscure faiths that are represented here in the symbols. Luckily, one of those great national park rangers will probably be there to help you by this time with any kind of questions you might have, with an explanatory brochure and a wealth of knowledge. I'm sure they're asked dozens of times a day about the more obscure symbols that are on the wall here. The monument still elicits its fair share of controversy. In fact, I just recently read that some researchers were questioning whether that symbol, which they found on a coffin lid, 
was indeed actually a Sankofa, whether it was just a more random symbol or even just numbers. While I can't imagine anything will alter the monument in its present form, luckily, next door, in the very building whose excavations led to the discovery of the burial site, there's a free display outlining the meaning and story of the monument and will give you excellent background. In fact, when you go there, go to that exhibit first for some background because being plopped right down in the middle of the National Monument here, you might be a tad confused. Just be sure to check out the National Park Service website for times when that extra exhibit is open. And like I said, the monument is free and you can come down there and enjoy it. And I'm telling you, I don't know what it is. It's like a little oasis of calm just on this little street corner in the middle of bustling downtown Manhattan. Please check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for a few pictures of this and many other stories about New York City history. We're also on Facebook, so check us out there. Tom and I will be back in two weeks for a fresh new exciting tale of New York City history. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.